Welcome to Diamonds in the Rough Draft, a heartfelt dig through discarded drafts from our past. I'm your co-host, Eric Anderson. And I'm Emily Anderson. On draft this week is Reformation Brewery Stark Toasted Porter. Eric, tell us about Stark. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite beers from one of my favorite breweries. Uh, so we actually live in Woodstock, Georgia, where this brewery is housed. Uh, and I, I just love the story. So it is a local microbrewery that is really growing up in the area. And on their website, they have a, a lot of really good information about how they started. Spencer Nix is their CEO, and he goes through, you know, back in 2005, they started as home brewers that just kept trying and started attracting attention from the locals. And before they knew it, people were coming from the next state over just to taste their beer. And then they decided to actually go professional and start their own brewery with it. So it it spread out from Waleska, Georgia, where they first started. And then they started their, um, their operations in Woodstock. And since then, they now have three different locations in Canton, Woodstock, and one in uh, Kennesaw now, I believe. I thought it was Alfred. Or, or is it Ackworth? It's another place in Georgia. <laughs> it's another <laughs> local place in Georgia, and we're super excited about it. The location that is in downtown Woodstock, very near to us, uh, is kind of their experimentation station. So they'll have a lot of really strange things like, yeah. let's try a pear saison. Why not? Let's yeah. let's get weird with it. And uh, it's a really fun place to, to bring friends. And part of their... One of their slogans is set beer free, and they're trying to get away from the um, reputation of a lot of other beers that we may have seen in commercials growing up. And what I what I love about this and how it's so bizarre to me is this is like the most family friendly place. Yeah, we <laughs> take our kids there all the time. It's just like they have fire pits outside. Well, actually, they have yard I don't games. Think, I don't think little one's been there. No, because no, he was born, born during during the age of COVID. Okay, where nothing so let happened. me rephrase. We took our eldest son there all the time. <laughs> and he had a great time. Yeah. And it's just like, I never would imagine going with my family to a brewery like growing up that just wasn't yeah. something that was available so i love the fact that this microbrewery scene has grown up and it is integrated into the city and seen as like a great thing you know there's a playground right next to the brewery so you just have parents walking around with beer and kids running around having a great time and everybody's happy yeah. it's just wonderful so yeah. reformation is our our local brewery and yeah. we get to know the people who make the beer and who sell the beer and the different brews that they have and the seasonal ones and so this is one of my favorites and it's Definitely, I think, my father-in-law's favorite beer oh, that's sure. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And maybe my sister-in-law, too. So. <laughs> um, so that is what we have on tap today. Not on tap, on draft today. <laughs> okay, so while we drink our way through, we will be working through Eric's rough draft of... We're calling it elementary working title. <laughs> so, uh, but first, what are you thinking about right now? So we had a really funny moment in the car the other day. When we were just talking, and I think it was hot, and Emily said, I am just burning up. And I started make funning, make funning make fun of her. I make funning <laughs> of her immediately for that because, all right, so Emily and I are both transplants to the South. I moved to Opelika, Alabama when I was seven years old uh, from New York, the Syracuse area, and before then I had lived in Telford, Pennsylvania, and I was actually born in South Dakota. Both of my parents are from Virginia, so 
I grew up around a kind of just Midwestern Southern. nothing yeah. accent well, until I was Midwestern seven years until I was yeah. seven years old, and then I got down to Alabama and I couldn't understand anything anybody said, <laughs> and 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 here I am, and just being in the South for this long, inevitably, whether it's ironic or not. Southern just creeps yeah. into my voice, and Emily's yeah. story is pretty much the same. Yeah, my my parents are from Palos Verdes, California, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was born in St. Louis. We moved to Augusta, Georgia when I was nine. Yeah, nine. I remember having to try really hard to understand what people were saying, but I also remember a very serious conversation in the like car as we're driving into Georgia (laughs) like literally moving into Georgia I remember my parents being like now this is a mannerly place and you must learn to say yes ma'am and (laughs) yes sir (laughs) they didn't mention y'all they didn't mention mention all that no they didn't mention y'all which is still the best plural you. Yeah. yeah well, and yous. it's not, it's not what I, it's not my go-to. After all, mm. 21 years in the South, I still am more likely to say you guys. Yeah. It kind of depends on who I'm talking to. It definitely depends. But, so we were talking about how the burning just, it just slipped out. Yeah, she was speaking in her normal voice, and then suddenly for that <laughs> one word in the middle of a conversation, she was deep south Georgia peach. You know, I don't think it was burning. I think I said burnt. Burnt? That was yeah, it, yes. Yeah, it was burnt. Oh, man, we spent so much time <laughs> prepping for this podcast trying to remember that word, and we had to actually get in here and record to make it happen. Yeah, something was burnt. <laughs> Yeah. Toast or some. Well, word. and I was very confused. I I was like, is burnt a word? No, it's because I started or... laughing. Yeah. And, and, and you're like, like, wait, did I burn? Burnt, burnt's a word. Burnt, burned, burnt, burned. 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 It was burned. <laughs> Behold the bush that burned. So we bring it all up um, because we've been thinking about diction and dialects and how that shows up in you know, all the media that we consume, but especially in books to set, it gives you the setting. It tells you a lot about what you might expect about a character. It can be used to subvert expectations about a character. I don't know. The first thing that came to my mind was the dialect that uh, Hagrid speaks in, in Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Well, because we were in the car, we were also trying to think of any other like English dialect that we knew of or English accent, however you want to phrase it, where people drop the G. Going, sitting, burning. And I feel like unless you're speaking proper posh, either American or British, usually the first thing to go is the G at the Mm -hmm. end of the word. It doesn't matter when you put on the Brooklyn accent or the Jersey accent or like Boston accent, whatever it is, the G goes away. Yeah, well, so I realize it kind of depends on the place in the sentence. So if it's in the middle of the sentence, I'm more likely to let the G go to like get to the next word more quickly. It's really interesting to me, like thinking about this concept, because I write mostly fantasy and science fiction. Yeah, same. And and it's a really interesting conversation with myself because I'm usually very hesitant to go away from kind of standard diction uh, for my characters. I might have somebody speak in a more elevated tone because they're more educated versus somebody who who is not as as educated but usually i i i just hesitate part of it is probably because having a character 
and writing in dialect is super hard. Like yeah. it's just it's kind of annoying. And when I'm in the zone of writing, I don't want to make sure that I have spelled this word correctly in the dialect that the character is speaking. Yeah. I want to be able to write the word going and then continue on with the themes. Maybe maybe afterwards I could go in and actually change it so that the dialect matches. But that is a struggle that I have and I usually wind up just avoiding it because of that. Yeah. But I I think it's not a tool to be overlooked. I think it's very useful in characterization. I'm thinking about another series of books that I really like. They're by Elizabeth Peters. They're, they follow the Emerson family who are like Egyptologists in Victorian and turn of the century, Britain and um, Egypt. <laughs> go figure. Yeah, go figure. Yeah. Egyptologists. But there's there's the first character that comes to mind is this this journalist who's who's Irish and she'll say in the text as well as showing you that his Irish brogue I'm using quote fingers because I'm quoting the text here <laughs> um, gets stronger when he's when he feels like he's kind of having to play up his character as a as a journalist as like an Irish journalist you know just one of the one of the the general public you know but when he's dropped the mask and he's kind of just having a private moment with like the matriarch of the emerson family the text even notes that he's dropped his broke and it it tells you that he's actually a you know well-educated character and that he's using his he as a character is using his dialect and diction to create this this meta character that the people he's interviewing for his news stories will respond to. And it shows up in those the dialect and diction also show up in those books when it comes to like the more upper class, they slip in a lot of like foreign words, like French words, especially, but you know, you'll see some German and like Italian and stuff in there too. So, you know, like these characters are really well read. Mm -hmm. They're probably upper class. I think whether it should be this way or not, those things can tell you a lot about the class of a character. Yeah, well, I mean, and we understand the history behind that of, you know, all right, well, this is why this class of people would have learned French and English. Yeah, this is this why is this why person... This people would oh, have here, here come the way. Germans. This is why they know English yeah, and German. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so it makes sense. Well, and because of that, I think it's also a really useful tool in, in subverting expectations. You know, if you've got someone with a really extreme, like, Brooklyn drawl, no, they don't drawl, like Brooklyn, whatever you want to call their accent, <laughs> or or if you've got someone with like a deep Mississippi drawl, and then suddenly they're like spouting really intense physics problems or like yeah. really intense philosophical discussions, then you've subverted expectations and like, ah, you thought they were uneducated. It's the Yoda thing. <laughs> yeah. He's weird and he looks weird and he speaks very strangely backwards. And then, oh, wait, he was actually wise the whole time. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think I read this meme years ago that was somebody considering the way that different 
um, races are written in fantasy series. And the, the thought experiment was, why are all of these elves and dwarves and men all kind of just different flavors of British accents? Why are we doing that? What would it be like if the dwarves were from Minnesota? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what if the elves spoke with a you Brooklyn can't accent? can't say Minnesota without doing the accent. No, it's Minnesota. Minnesota. I can't, I can't no. do it, no. Um, yeah, I, I, I can. just think... Minnesota. So, I'm so proud of you. You're amazing. <laughs> I, I think... I love that idea. I really do. You know, why Why not? Let's just play with it. But, okay, so another thing that makes this strange for me right now is a lot of my reading over the past six or seven years has been on audiobook. So I'm not seeing nearly as many words on the page as I have the rest of my life. To the point that when I hear the narrator speak in an accent... I don't actually know if that is them as an actor affecting the accent in order to make the character sound different enough from the other characters, or if the author of the book has actually written marks and and dialect and spelling so that the character is seen as different. I would really like to go through I and think see. some of that's at the discretion of the of the audiobook reader. I'm thinking about well, I'm thinking about my beloved Elizabeth Peters yeah. <laughs> Emerson family books like I was just talking about. But I'm also thinking about the uh, Harry Potter audiobooks, um, mm-hmm. specifically with Bellatrix Lestrange. Early on when the when the guy was recording this audiobook, I don't think all of them had been released. And so or he definitely hadn't read all of them. So I think you first hear the name or you first hear the character speak before you find out that she's related mm-hmm. to to you know Brit- before you find out that she's definitely British she that she speaks with a British accent so that narrator gives her a French accent for the or narrator that audiobook reader gives her a French accent for the whole book series and it takes me out of the story every time. That's funny. I didn't realize that. But like, yeah. um, then you've got Barbara Rosenblatt, who is amazing, and we actually. Oh, we met her. That was so fantastic. Yeah, we met her at the Marietta Library. <laughs> and we fan, fan personed all yeah, we fan over it. It was so great. Hard. She signed something. Yeah, she signed two pictures for us. I don't know where they are now. We need to find yeah, them. Yeah, we should find those. They were treasured them. objects. We'll put them next to our wedding photos. Yes. <laughs> But uh, so in the in the Peabody books, the, the Emerson family books, like they're encountering French and German and Italian and Egyptian and as well as, you know, various classes of British people. And she does the accents for all of them. And I think some of that is indicated on the page, but I think some of that is just audible reader gumption <laughs> uh, it was and god i mean talk about a master of her craft it was, was so much so fun to just sit there and listen as she you know she did a reading and she went yeah. down the page and there were four different characters talking different you know some were women some were men one was a child some of them had different accents yeah, she, and she's she just did a boom going readings. through it yeah. and it was yeah. so impressive to oh, hear there her was switch one, there was one sentence she did where she like started with a british accent switched to an american accent and then switched to like a french accent just blah, 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 blah. it was it was amazing and we haven't even watched her in orange is the new black we are purely fans of her audiobook <laughs> reading. I'm aware that she has done other work, but I have not yet pursued it. There, uh, gentle listener, there are audiobooks that I have bought only because Barbara Rosenblatt 
uh, audio book, audible read them. Audio books them. Yeah, she audio, audio books, books them. them. <laughs> True story. Um, so Emily likes to listen to these as she falls asleep, <laughs> and has done so for you know, seven years. Yeah. And I. Uh, I, her voice puts me to sleep now. I have been trained <laughs> over the last seven years that if Barbara Rosenblatt is speaking, it is bedtime. And so she's not allowed to listen to it in the car. It's dangerous. And if I'm driving, she has to have something more lively on. Yeah. Otherwise, it could get dangerous. Well, that was wonderful. Now, before you give us the dramatic reading, Eric, tell us what you remember about this story and why it was written. This one is going to be difficult. I can tell based upon... The other stories that I have in my files that this was written before I got to middle school. And I strongly suspect I didn't write it in second grade. So it was somewhere either third, fourth, or fifth grade. I suspect it was fifth grade. We're going to say fifth grade. I, I was able to label all of my others or most of my others. The problem is my family computer moved to another family computer. So some of these things just got saved as old school files and it is under the impression that I, I wrote it. I was much more careful Lush. about moving all of my files. Since she was very young, <laughs> Emily has been just convinced she is going to be famous. So she's gone yeah, through really the trouble not of... Not famous. A famous writer. <laughs> that is also very important. So <laughs> That last word's really important, you guys. So she has done I'm all the work. I'm not here for my 15 minutes of fame. Okay. <laughs> 15 here years. for the craft. All of it. <laughs> So, so she's done all the work for the historians and like nicely labeled everything. And, and yeah, uh, we're talking about you. We're talking about me right yeah, now. Yeah, we're talking okay? about you. Less about you. Yeah, yeah. About me. All right. All about you. So I know that in school I was probably learning about Greek mythology at this point. Um, or the Disney Hercules movie had just come out. Oh, that's a good call. That might, what do you think? Like 95, 96? It was before my family moved from St. Louis. So. Which happened in? <laughs> 2000. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going with 96 because we're not allowed to Google. I feel like it might be more like 97 or 98. I'm going to Google it, gentle oh, listener. Cheating. Okay, not you tell allowed. you tell more about what you remember. Well, I don't. So oh, that, this is it. Yeah, That's this is it. That the... is that is the end of my story. I don't have a title. I don't remember. 97. 97. It's a 97 okay. movie. 1997. Yeah. I was born in 88, so I was probably nine years old, which would put me in fourth grade. Yeah, there you go. All right. So Eric was obsessed with the Hercules, the Disney Hercules movie when he was a child. I actually really remember loving the TV show more. Um, I didn't know there was a TV show. There was a TV show. All of these Disney movies had TV shows. Aladdin had a TV show. Well, I didn't have cable until I was like 12. (laughs) So So I missed it. (laughs) I guess I didn't have extended cable until I was probably in middle school or high school. So, all right, all right. So I, I was apparently obsessed or I was just kind of familiar with some of the tropes that went along with Greek mythology after a certain point. Yeah. Um, I, I do know that I grew up reading this version of the Odyssey called Tales of Ulysses. I've never heard of this. Yeah, it's and it, it was really just a kid's version of the Odyssey, and it had a... My parents must have gotten it either used or from a yard sale or something like that, because... Did you just try to drink the empty beer? No, I'm laughing about something completely different, but I'm trying to let you finish your story. All right, I'll finish my story. It was a kid's version of the Odyssey um, with Ulysses, and that's... I, I used to read that all the time. It was one of my go-to books, so I suspect that may have had a lot to do yeah. with it as well. I was laughing because I was trying to remember the earliest, like, book of 
mythology or like Greekness I ever Greekness. read. Yeah, Greek we're going with that one. And I realized that it was a wishbone <laughs> version of the Odyssey. <laughs> Excellent. Well, then, no, that's I stand up for wishbone. All right, that is. <laughs> Those books were awesome. You flipped the page, and a little yeah. animation of yeah. him would happen in the corners. I wish books would do that now. I wish a really serious <laughs> novel would do that. Anyways. That sounds nice. So thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. And now... A dramatic reading! A dramatic reading! Dramatic reading! Dramatic reading! <laughs> Unnamed title by Eric Anderson. <laughs> Once there was a great king named Slugqui. He was a wise king, but he had two faults. He always wanted to expand his power and give himself more land and slaves. He also thought he was the most beautiful thing that anyone had ever seen. He wanted to be greater than the gods themselves. He did some evil deeds, stole hundreds of slaves, and took hundreds of acres of land. The gods saw these evil deeds and decided to punish him. They took away his kingdom and changed him into a giant slug. They banished him to a huge dark cave many miles below the earth. But the gods made one mistake. When they converted him, they made him the keeper of slime and poison. <laughs> As happens, they never thought that he would use these powers against them. Slugqui stayed quiet for a long time underneath the earth. Soon people forgot about him. It was then that he chose to strike. It was one day after the Olympics had been completed, and hundreds of people were crowded around the Parthenon, giving thanks to the gods. Suddenly, slime started mucking up from the fountains and coming through the cracks in the floor. Everyone ran in panic, but they were trapped. Then, in the center of the Parthenon, a pool of acid sprang up and melted the floor away, leaving a gaping hole in the floor. Out of that hole came Slugqui, as ugly and slimy as ever. He roared and sent showers of sticky slime everywhere. Everyone was stuck to the floor. They fought and wriggled, but they could not break out of the slime. Slugqui laughed and fought and wriggled and yelled out, <laughs> I will not release you until the gods undo this monstrosity that they made me into. I know that you hear me, gods. So hear this, for every day that I am still a slug, I will eat one person. The gods heard his threat and wondered about what they should do. The gods finally came up with an answer. Among the prisoners was a young man named Eric. <laughs> At first, you wouldn't think there was anything special about him, but he was special. He was a direct descendant from Hercules. Oh. <laughs> Casual giggling. All right. It's so good, you guys. All through his family, amazing things had happened, and people had been waiting for the day when something would happen to him. <laughs> It had been five days since the Parthenon had been taken over, and in turn, five more people had been eaten. One night, when Slugqui was asleep, the gods contacted Eric and told him what he had to do. They broke the slime that held him and gave him weapons. He agreed to their plan and then waited until morning. The next morning, Slugqui awoke and found himself still a slug. He bellowed, Gods, why do you ignore me? Maybe now you will listen as I devour my sixth human. He reached down and picked up Eric. He brought him towards his mouth. But just as, as he was about to push him in, 
Eric slipped out of the slime and struck Slugqui with the sword that the gods had given him. Slugqui screamed in pain and then threw a glob of acid at Eric. Eric dodged, then yelled, You are a monster! You take human lives just to appease yourself! Now see the monster that you really are! At that, Eric held up a huge mirror that had been hanging up in the hall. Slugwee took one look, then screamed in agony, for he was extremely ugly. <laughs> While Slugwee was screaming, Eric picked up a big box of salt and threw it on him. Wah! yelled Slugwee. <laughs> Eric threw box after box of salt onto Slugwee <laughs> until he had to stop and cover his ears. The salt <laughs> ate into Slugwee and melted him. Soon, all that was left was a puddle of slime. But it was not a complete loss. The five <laughs> people that Slugwee had devoured were revealed when he had melted. They were in good health and soon returned to their families. The gods also restored the Parthenon. As for the puddle of slime, it formed billions of much smaller slugs that are the descendants of Slugwee. <laughs> Um, thank you for sharing that with us. So, my, my first thoughts are I'm really glad that the gods restored the Parthenon because I've been there and I, I don't see any evidence of slugweed. You don't see the giant hole of acid no. in the middle? No. Okay, where he came up from his cave? No. Oh, well, that's good. I don't know that there is a cave underneath the Parthenon. Oh, well, have it's you like, been there? Yes. In the cave? Have you been no. underneath the Parthenon? Have you looked? So, while I was reading this, I felt like you were um, picturing the Colosseum while you wrote this. I don't know what I was... I don't know if I was picturing anything. I think I knew... The Parthenon's a big temple that's on the top of this, like... Oh, yeah. I was totally picturing the Colosseum. Yeah. I was picturing somewhere where, like, sport would happen. It's like... Because it's where the Olympics... Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, the Parthenon was, like, a... A temple and it's like on the top of this mountain and you climb up and you guys it's really cool when you're climbing up the stairs for thousands of years now people have been climbing up these stairs and so the stones are worn smooth you don't want to wear flip-flops as <laughs> i learned <laughs> Ooh. okay um so I thought this was really interesting i think there's actually a i think there's a lot that you could do to rewrite this story like there were there were a lot of points where you were telling instead of showing and so I was like you could very easily ex expand this by by showing you know who are the gods I kind of just do what jump is with into... the slaves <laughs> <laughs> there's slaves around you know there's always slaves um, uh, but but you're right. I don't jump into and say like this is a tale of ancient Greece. No, we hear once there was a great king named Slugqui, which I was not expecting to be Greek. They got it. <laughs> like, it doesn't sound like a Greek name. Neither no, does Eric. Neither frankly. does Eric. No, yeah. no. Um, yeah, I literally have a note that says, "What? We're in Greece now." <laughs> <laughs> we were in Greece the whole time. Um, I had questions about the acid. Because they made him keeper of slime and poison, so I I really want to see more of the story tell me why there's acid. I want to know who the gods are. I want to see them talking about everything. That is usually something that happens. I thought of another uh, probably inspiration for this story. Oh, God, what was this? Clash of the Titans. My brother and I loved Clash of the Titans. It's stop motion. It. I think I've made you watch it since no, then. No, you have not. 
Uh, well, we have it on DVD, so now we're gonna watch it. Oh it no! It is so great. Like, so I know that I know that it was an inspiration for this, at least in part, because uh, it has Perseus versus Medusa, and he uses the mirror in order to kill yeah, Medusa. Yeah, I saw. Yeah. You know? So, like, that is that is obviously a reference to that. I'm not sure if there's anything else that would have directly come from that, but that would have also informed me as a as a kid writing this. Yeah, there's a couple of like. <laughs> spelling errors that i've circled Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know you're she used red pen you're over 30 years old now you should know which hole to use (laughs) what oh goodness oh that that, yes i did use the wrong hole everyone i did (laughs) you did this to yourself emily (laughs) okay out of the hole came slug queen but it was W H O L E instead of H O L E. That's right. So I'm gonna. I almost on you. made fun of myself as I was doing my dramatic reading, but I bravely stepped okay. through it. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> um, there are. I feel like you had just learned what exclamation points were because there are a lot of. Oh, I was very excited. Points. You know, like he was gonna. He was gonna get the people. Um, I think you should name the sword. Okay. When you're rewriting yeah, this. Yeah, that is... A sword yeah. from the gods should have a name. Yeah. I was confused about the salt, so... Um, <laughs> where did the salt come from? Yeah, why was it I in literally boxes? say, where did those come from? Um, and why are they in boxes? <laughs> I don't think in bo- I was picturing... I don't think boxes <laughs> had been invented by... Morton's <laughs> table salt, guys. That's what I was picturing. Just... <laughs> So we all know what kind of little boy Eric was putting salt on. Table sl- salt boy. That's... No, I, was, I meant putting salt on slugs. Oh yeah, okay, but, yeah, I did um, that. I did. So mean, Peta. Please don't come for us. I know it's terrible. I'm teaching him to be better. I'm learning. This yeah. was part of my, uh, um, not remorse. Penitence. No, what's it called? When penitence. You... Penitence. <laughs> this was part of my pen penitence. Having to write the story. Wow, that's a hard word to say if you're trying really hard. <laughs> Try to say penitent statistics. Um, I also the mirror just comes out of nowhere, and I don't know why we're in a hallway. You were also clearly picturing a, a mirror hanging in the hallway yeah, of your house. Probably. Yeah. I really loved. They were in good health and soon returned to their family. <laughs> I don't know what they were doing in between, but <laughs> and then you know a lot of a lot of my notes are just like technical. You know, there's a lot of exclamation points. The, the dialogue hasn't been properly formatted. There's a lot of telling, and I want to be shown. So as far as like I don't know, it's the subject matter itself and the what I'm trying to do in the story and like some of the conventions that I'm playing with in the story. This is what I, I refer to it in my head as a just so story, which came from uh, Kipling. Yeah. Uh, as a kind of, I am telling the story of where slugs came from. Yeah. Or, Why uh, do beavers have funny tales? Yeah, you know, exactly. that kind, that of, kind of story. Of... Yeah. Yeah. Th- so they're all s- properly, this is an ideal etiological tale. We also learned that they're apparently also called uh poor Tales, which we had never seen before. Only by the French. Um, so I thought I thought it was interesting. There are two. I see there are two dis- distinct directions you could take this. You could clean it up, shorten it, make it only a just so story. But you could also throw out the just so story elements and keep it 
either mythological fantasy story or just completely set it in a different place and throw out the Greek angle. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily... We just have a monster battle. This is man versus monster classic. Uh, It's not even really like one of the labors of Hercules, although it's probably pretty similar like it's like hercules versus the nemean lion or something like that it's just we have a beast that has been killing people and we have a hero who comes in to slay the beast yeah. and then everybody is happy so you can follow that basic structure and you could set it either in greece or just on a completely you know different planet or a completely different fantasy mm. land or you could also like there's a lot of this that you cut out and just make a very simple short just so story. So if I were to pursue it more from the Greek angle, I think it never really goes out of style. People might get tired of it after a little while, but I am personally fascinated with um, two books recently written by Madeline Miller. One is Circe, which is just the tale of the Odyssey from Circe's point of view. And then the other one is the Song of Achilles. And both are just so beautifully written, yeah, heartbreakingly gorgeous. beautiful and, yeah. and gorgeous. And I really look up to those. Like they're very, very good examples of what this genre can do. And it's taking thousands, stories that are thousands of years old and making them applicable to a modern audience in a really, really wonderful way. Yeah. So, so piggybacking off of that, um, for you listeners at home who are also trying to come up with your next story or poem idea, um, There's a poet, A.E. Stallings, who is from Georgia. (laughs) She lives in Greece now, but she was originally from Georgia, who, who, she's written a lot of poems that dabble with retelling Greek myth. The, the one that I'm particularly familiar with and like is, uh, Persephone to Psyche from her volume Olives. It's really good, y'all. Just go read it. Olives. Yeah. That sounds nice. Um, the whole the whole volume is, is beautiful, but that specifically is, you know, retelling some myth or coming at myth from a more modern take. And even besides just straight up retellings, you could have something like, I mean, Percy Jackson, um, The Lightning Thief, and the, the rest of those series, it's taking the idea of Greek mythology and then expanding it, expanding the story into... Well, he does it into the modern day, but I don't see why you couldn't do the exact same thing and, you know, keep it in ancient times, yeah. but we don't use any of the same heroes or any of the same names. We're just going to keep the setting the same and we're going to keep the gods the same. And why not make it a descendant of Hercules? I don't remember. Wait, does, I think all his children die, but one acts. He kills his children. Yeah. Okay, but, but, all right, so this is, like, why Greek mythology is so great, because everybody knows that, and then a thousand years later, somebody's like, but didn't you know that he had one child that actually survived by accident, and nobody knew, and then was raised by a local beggar woman? didn't you know someone swooped in and saved the children, and he actually slaughtered three goats? (laughs) As happens. You know. Happens all the time. That's the kind of retelling I'm looking for. (laughs) Exactly. What direction do you suspect you're going to take with this? I suspect I'm going to get away from the just so story and do it more of a man versus monster myth. Ah. Just because, I, I don't know, that kind of mythological tale I feel like doesn't have as much room to kind of take people by surprise. The just so story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know what's going to happen at the end. Slugs. Slugs happen. And if... 
there are so many conventions that I can play with and, and twists and turns that I can, that to try to upset that convention and do a man versus monster story in a way that people aren't expecting. I don't know what that means yet. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but you know, and I don't want to do like the monster was good all this time and he was just misunderstood. And I don't want to do the man and the monster wind up teaming up to defeat a greater monster. So, because those have all been done to death also at this point. So I've got to try to figure out a way to twist this. Just don't and... make him oh, they could bad fall in because... The... Oh, I was going to say, just don't make him someone who just wants to see the world burn. <laughs> oh, the Joker has also been done. Oh, I know. I know what I could do. The slug gets captured on purpose and gets sent to prison <laughs> so that his overly elaborate plan could go through and he drives a train into the middle of Greece and etc. Yeah. Oh Can you tell Eric's tired of that plot point, guys? Too many times. Three in a row in like the same year. It's just awful. Wait, what were the other two? So you had The Dark Knight. And then you had Loki from Avengers. Uh, and then you had, uh, what was his name? Silva from um, James Bond. Oh, I forget about that one. Yeah. All happened. Like, all of them happened while I was in college. So it yeah. was at least a two or three year span. And these are big movies. These are writers that are paid a lot of money. Come on, guys. You can no, do better. No, that James Bond movie was when we first started dating. Skyfall, really? Well, you know, it's, I love Skyfall. I really do. But that one plot point is completely unnecessary and trite. I will say it. Trite. Yeah, trite. Trite, trite, trite. Yeah. So. Well, Eric, you've never written a movie. That's because I refuse to use that convention. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the point? It's hard writing a movie out there, <laughs> man. Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm really going to have to delve deep. To try to figure out a way to do a man versus monster Now I want it story. to be a man versus monster movie script. <laughs> well, you got to start with a short story, okay? And yes, then, yes, you do. And you then do, we'll do. change it to a movie script once it wins Yeah, once it goes big, it wins all the Hugos, you know. Yeah. yeah. Just two. Just two Hugos. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this episode will also win its own Hugo. Oh, I'm realizing that we meant to talk about what we're currently working on when we were introducing ourselves at the beginning of the episode. Oh, we forgot right. to do okay. that. Well, Emily, what are you working on right now? I am currently working on a children's book series. If you are a children's book agent or a children's book publisher, please contact me. <laughs> I have books for you. She does. She has <laughs> books. And I am working on a novel called The Boy Who Shook the Hawthorne Tree, which I've been working on for a little while. And it is about a college freshman in the American South who discovers that the wizard Merlin is trapped in the Hawthorne Tree outside of his rental home. So if you are an agent or publisher, please contact us. <laughs> I'm also open to beta readers and general people who are interested in the subject. And yeah. I'd love to talk to you about it and... Have you read excerpts and etc.? Yeah, so with that in mind, I'd love to keep talking, but my glass is empty and my brain is full. Thank you for sharing your rough draft today, and I look forward to hearing it again on Open Mic Night. Dear listener, if you have any edits, thoughts, or suggestions on this rough draft, you can find us on Instagram as Diamonds in the Rough Draft or by email at diamondroughdraftpod at gmail.com. If you or someone in your life is interested in having a draft on this podcast or joining as a guest, please reach out. If you happen to be Neil Gaiman or Gail Character, please reach out quickly. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Diamonds in the Rough Draft. This is Emily Anderson. And this is Eric Anderson. Have a great time and don't edit under the influence.
All works read on the Diamonds in the Rough Draft podcast are original works and are not to be reproduced or distributed in any form without the express written permission of the author. All works of fiction on this podcast are products of the author's imaginations, and any resemblance to the actual events, places, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.